everybody. Great to see you. It seems like this season we were into like one words. And so for the last five weeks, we've looked at six weeks, we looked at one word, grace. And we're going to spend the next month looking at one word, and that's covenant. And so this is beginning a new series on, uh, on what the word covenant means. Today we're going to be looking at God's covenant with us. Now, as I've thought about this, I thought I'm, I'm nearly uh, 30 years into vocational ministry. That's a, that's a chunk of time. And I, I, I've been thinking of some things that I have been trying to say in different ways over the last few weeks. And it's this, that there seems to be uh, one way in which uh, people, uh, one reason why people follow God, it's really profound, and it's to get something. I think that's why I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, hell seemed really nasty. Uh, God seemed really powerful. Maybe he could save me from hell. Maybe he could save me from uh, things that I was going through in my life. So I became a Christian for very practical reasons. And uh, uh, it seems reasonable that that's why we would come to Christ. Sometimes I feel as though we even will treat the Bible this way, that the Bible is kind of a, a list of maybe what we could get from God. And so the story is whatever. Anyways, I just want to know what can I get from God? What is, the, what is he promising to me? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it talks about all the promises that are in the Bible are fulfilled in Jesus. Well, that's a pretty good deal. And so that maybe the reason why you're here and the reason why might, you might call yourself a Christian or are seeking God is you want to know what's in it for you. What's the benefit of it? And if the benefit just, you do a, you know, cost analysis, if the, if, the, if the benefit isn't there, then why really do it? And so we can view Christianity this way. Maybe a, a, a word to summarize this view of Christianity, and maybe the way that we look at our life in general, is the idea of contracts. I don't know about you, but that's how I think. I think in terms of contracts. If you choose a friend, why do you choose that friend? How do you stay in relationship with them? Well, if they, they fulfill the friend contract. If they text within a reasonable amount of time, uh, when you go to a movie, uh, they're not always uh, asking for 20 bucks. Uh, they are able to keep some conversation going. Uh, that's a contract. And if they don't fulfill that contract, you'll move on to another friend. Uh, it's just uh, when you're at work, you don't show up and say, I'm just here for you. And it doesn't matter what you pay me, don't care at all. I'm just, no, you, you have a contract. And you make sure that if you sign up to be employed by that person, that it's worth it to you. I think that that is the uh, most basic human way of thinking is we think contractually. And uh, if you're going to go on a date, what are you going to do? Are they... Are they worth your time? I mean, it's just horrible to say it out loud, but we're, I think that we're thinking it. You know, are you worth me, you know, spending time with you? It's a contract. I think we even see uh, prayer this way, that uh, the contract is, I'm, we've talked about this in the last few weeks, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray to you, that's my job, and then you're going to answer it. That's your job. And if God doesn't answer our prayer, if he doesn't fulfill the promises that we see in the Bible, if he doesn't fulfill our expectations, I think we feel justified in divorce. 
And we'll say, it's not you, it's me, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, uh, you didn't do what you said you would do. And why would I ever stay in a relationship where you're not obeying the contract? I think it's one of the main reasons why we would do this thing called sin. Is we would say, look, God, I tried to trust you. I tried to be devoted to you but you wouldn't come through for me, so I had to take matters into my own hands. I had to do things my way. What do you expect? I have needs, and if you're not gonna meet the needs in your way, well, then I'm gonna meet the needs in my way. Seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? It's a contractual way of thinking. And I think it's embed in the very DNA of who we are as human beings. So much so, it's hard to imagine another way of relating to people. What could that other way be? Well, we're going to look at that this morning by looking at the life of Abraham. Abraham shows up very early in the Bible in Genesis chapter 12. And uh, it begins by God describing a contract to Abraham. He says this to Abraham. He says, look, if you move, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but if you move and do what I tell you to do, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to give you lots of kids. You're going to have a land of your own. It's going to be outstanding. And so Abraham looks at this. He goes, well, that's great. I'd love to have a land of my own. I'd love to have so many kids. Back then, that was a deal, you know. But I'd like to have so many kids that actually nations would be birthed out of me. I'm in. And so he packs up everything and goes uh, to follow God into a place he's never been. Now, uh, that happened when he was 75 years old. The fulfillment of those promises didn't happen for another 25 years. So already he's been waiting 75 years to understand anything. Now he's midway through the 25 years, and he's beginning to say, is God really holding up his end of the contract? It's a reasonable question, isn't it? So this is how God responds to Abraham's doubts about whether he's good at fulfilling contracts. It's Genesis 15. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. And uh, Abram's thinking, really? Great reward. Don't see a thing. Nothing's happening. So Abram said, sovereign Lord, very polite, what can you give me since I remain childless? You promised something, and I haven't seen it yet. So, and it all hinges on me having like at least one kid, and so far, nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He just restates the promise without really any description as to why, how it's going to work out. But here's what's remarkable about Abram. Abram believed the Lord, and God credited to him as righteousness, meaning, wow, you're engaging in a right relationship with me. Now, what's interesting to note in this is that it says that Abraham didn't believe the promise, he believed the Lord. And so there's already a shift in Abraham's thinking away from just about whether you're going to fulfill the promises or not as to whether I'm going to trust in you as my God. That's pretty good. And then God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. That was promise number two. But, Abraham still isn't convinced, but Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, again so polite, 
how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the way that, that, that Abraham is thinking is you made some promises, uh, so far not keeping those promises, how am I going to be able to trust you to keep your word? Very reasonable. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Okay, what does that have to do with anything? Well, uh, this is a foreshadowing of uh, a number of generations later when Moses is born, establishes law in, uh, in the people of Israel, which is all of Abraham's descendants, and uh, they have a sacrificial system that is how they symbolize their need for forgiveness from God. And it's by an animal taking the place of their spilt blood that an animal would take their life instead, and it would be a sign of their need to be forgiven, where somebody would need to die in their place. Very, very sobering. So this is kind of a first foreshadowing of that, and it summarizes all the kinds of animals that are going to be sacrificed later on in the... Uh, in the the uh, religious rituals of Israel. So, Abraham brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. Now, let me tell you what that's about. So he cuts all of these animals in half, and uh, back then, the way that you would enter into a contract with somebody is you would do this. You would take an animal, so you agree on some land that you're going to buy or something. And so you, you're going to enter into a contract, and what you do is you take an animal and you kill it and cut it into really violent culture. Anyways, this is what it was like back then. And so you cut this animal in two, and the two of you who, in, who are entering into this contract would walk in between the two halves of this dead animal. And what you were saying in that moment is, let it be to me what's happened to these animals if I renege on this contract. Well, that's a little intense. It wasn't like a, yo, dude, it's all good. It was like, if you don't do this, you know what's going to happen. And I have a legal right to be able to do this to you on my hands if you don't follow through on this contract. So this is all going according to what Abraham would understand. I get it. I engage in a contract. God's a little slow. Who knows why? but he's reestablishing the contract through this moment, saying, don't worry, I'm going to be faithful. But it switches up. But as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared. Now, I... I we don't have time to go into this today, but that equals the presence of God, all right? That's the presence of God. And so this smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So what you have is you have this standard contract scenario being set up. The problem is Abraham is put into a deep sleep and he can't go through the middle of this. So he is not going to participate in the fulfillment of this contract, because he's sleeping. And then uh, God goes through, consumes the pieces, and this is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do thousands of years later, where he is going to be the sacrifice 
that pays for our sins and takes upon us the responsibility of the entire relationship. You can't fulfill it. I'm going to fulfill this relationship on, on your behalf and do what you can't do. Dying for our sins, reconciling us to God. Amazing. And here's what's said in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Starts with a contract, ends with a covenant. What's going on here? God turned Abram's pursuit of a contract into a covenant. Now, we're going to unpack this, but this is what's going on in this story. It, the story starts with Abraham being like you and I, living with contract thinking. And by the end of the story, God is trying to help Abraham understand that there's a new way of relating to God, and it's on the basis of covenant, not contract. So let's talk about the difference between these two, between a covenant and a contract. You'll see a little thing that's going to come up on the screen. It'll be really fun. There it is. Contract. So what is a contract? A contract is a legal agreement of expectations. Pretty obvious. It's legal, which means it's binding. It's a mutual agreement, and I have some expectations. If you're going to enter into a contract with a bank and get a loan, uh, the expectation is you're going to give me some money and then I'm going to pay it back uh, every month or twice a month, whatever it is, uh, with interest. And so then you sign it and, uh, and you've now engaged in a contract with them. You've both agreed what your responsibilities are, what the other person's responsibilities are. You've signed a contract and it's now binding. Here's the problem with a contract. Again, I think we all think this way, but uh, there's a problem with it. There's at least two. The first is, is that it's based on selfishness. I want something that you have. This is, uh, this is Christianity 101. Uh, hell sounds nasty. You have heaven. I'd like that instead of hell. So, uh, so I don't know if I love you or even care about you, but uh, Christians seem to be all about this thing about wanting their sins forgiven and, and following you. So I guess I'll do that. But my motive is I just don't, don't want to go to hell. And I hear that you're very powerful and that sometimes you answer prayers. So I'd like that too, if you don't mind. Just going through the menu, what the Bible promises. I like that, like that and that. Don't want, really want that, but I like that. And then we just go through assembling a contract with God. But really, it has nothing to do with God and everything to do with what we want from him. The other uh, unfortunate part of a contract is it's based on mistrust. Uh, I really want these things. I'm not sure you're going to give it. So the best thing that I can imagine is a contract that you sign and that I can sue you if you don't go through with what you promised. It's a contract. But a contract is based on mistrust, is it not? At a... Uh, my uncle lived in, uh, in Calgary, he's passed away, but he worked in the oil industry and he was in some kind of sales. I don't remember, I was just a kid. But I remember him talking about how a deal was made back in the day. And he says, we didn't have contracts back then. He says, uh, a handshake was enough and my word was my bond or whatever that, that saying is. And if we shook hands, we knew that we were going to live up to our end of the deal. And he, he was bemoaning the fact that we don't, we, he, you couldn't do that anymore. That you had to 
sign super detailed contracts, just imagining how the other person is going to break it, and then writing in all of those clauses in the hope that, you know, if you can think it all through well enough, it'll be binding enough for them to do what you need them to do. It's thoroughly based on mistrust. A covenant, on the other hand, believe it or not, is radically different. Now, it can sometimes look the same, which we're going to get to in a minute, but it's actually radically different. First of all, it's a personal pledge of love. A contract, the, mo the motive for getting into a contract is what you can get. The motive for entering into a covenant is for what you can give. And I am pledging to devote myself to you. It's my pledge. I'm not thinking about whether you're going to keep your end of the bargain and what am I getting out of this anyways. It's not about giving to get. It's about saying, I've decided that I am going to give myself wholly to you for your benefit. I'm going to love you. That's a little different. Hard to imagine that could ever happen, even maybe. And it's based on unilateral sacrifice. So this is Jesus, like the basis of Christianity. I am going to absorb all of the ways that you've broken relationship with me. I'm going to absorb that on the cross. And I'm going to do all that is necessary for us to be in relationship with one another. Just an incredible message, an incredible truth. But it's unilateral. It's not based on what you're going to do. It's based on what I've decided to do. Can you imagine how this would change the world if we engaged in a relationship on the basis of covenant instead of contract? That we would say, I have decided to do this regardless of you. Unilateral. And it's my honor to engage in this relationship with you. For richer, for poor, sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's a covenant. That's not a contract. There's no fine print. Now, here's where it gets interesting. <clears throat> God uses our agenda, contract, to lead us into his agenda, covenant. God uses our contract way of thinking to begin a relationship and during that relationship to move us from contract thinking to covenant thinking. Now this is fascinating. We see with Abraham that God begins the relationship with Abraham according to a contract. You move, I'm going to give you children and a land to raise them in. Are you in? Yes. Now the problem is it didn't happen right away. And it's not in the way that Abraham imagined. And so what's going on in all that? How does God move our way of thinking from being a contract people to a covenant people? What does he do to shift us over into making love and faithfulness our modus operandi instead of contracts? What does he do? Well, he does two things. The first thing that he does is he fulfills the contract. He gives us the promises that are recorded in the Bible. He gives those things to us. Well, that's pretty great. But why is he doing that? Is he doing it with the same motives that we have? Where he gives it and we say, well, I hope so. It's what I signed up for. Or 
is what he's doing by blessing us and loving us, uh, helping us build the kind of trust that we need to move our hearts from a contract heart to a covenant heart. That maybe he blesses and serves us. Yes, of course, to bless us and serve us. Yes, but there's another thing going on that he's trying to build trust so that we can drop our guard and engage in a real, authentic, loving relationship with God. What if that's really what's going on? As uh, some of you know, I have millions of children. And, uh, and they want stuff, quite often, I've noticed. And so they think we've got a contract. I ask, you give. That's the contract. <laughs> um, and uh, so they think, maybe, they're getting older now, so hopefully, please God, they've, uh, they've moved. But anyway, it's younger, younger. So, so they think, you have money, I don't. I want a PlayStation. Are you in? And then I get to decide if I am or not. What I'm thinking is I am trying to show myself to be loving and generous and faithful so that I can have an intimate life-giving love relationship with you. And you wouldn't drop your guard and engage with me if I didn't answer your prayers by giving you the things that you were wanting, the contract that you imagined in your head that we're in. And I have to give you stuff, one, because I just love doing it, but number two is I'm trying to build your trust so that you can see that something else is going on and that I want a relationship with you. That's the first way you shift somebody from contract ways of thinking to covenant ways of think thinking. You actually try to fulfill the contract. But the other way that you do it is you don't fulfill the contract and you withhold stuff. Well, that's not nearly as nice as the first way, but you actually have to do both. The second way is uh, they ask for stuff and you go, uh, no. And you go, I thought we had a contract. And now you're not doing the contract. What's the matter with you? I'm the child, you're the parent, you're at my beck and call, do your part. But if you only ever do that, parents, please give me an amen. But if you only ever do this, what do you create? Entitled children who, only, who never move outside of a contract way of thinking. You actually have to say no now and then, and if, you, if you're a parent, you know it's random. <laughs> like, no, now. <laughs> I have no idea why. But anyways, you're, you just make up stuff, so no. But the reason why you're saying no is because you're not trying to be a jerk. You're saying, if I only ever say yes, they'll never see that there's something more than just a contract going on here. That you've got to actually work through, will you stay close to me even though you don't get all you want? Makes sense. So, you know, try being God. Where, you know, sorry, but he's, you know, if he, if he gives us everything, we go, yeah, and we become entitled. He doesn't give us what we want, and we go, see, I knew, I knew you were stingy. I knew it. I just knew it all along. <laughs> I bless you, you curse me. I don't give you, you curse me. <laughs> But this is the challenge of moving the human mind from a contract way of thinking to a covenant way of thinking. 
and both are required. The challenge then, of course, is that I think that you and I prefer contracts because they feel safer, don't they? Just, let, just, just tell me the rules. Just, what do you want? How often do I have to read my Bible? Don't say every day. Like, and how often do I have to pray? And do I have to mean it when I pray? Just, I just want to know. I'm not being judgmental or legal. I just want to know. Do I have to mean it? And we just come up with a contract because it just feels like, okay, I know what, what I'm supposed to do and I know what you're going to do. Okay, I get it now. It's clear. It feels safer and we feel in control. There's almost no vulnerability in a contract. It's just you do what you want, I do what I want. We're both in this for selfish reasons. I get it. It's just business. How then does God change our hearts? Oh, sorry. Why, why would we change out of a, co a contract way of thinking? Because it's just natural to us. Why would we ever want to become a covenant people? Why? And there's only one word, and it's love. Only one word, it's love. We have a few people in our home who are in love right now. It's very amusing. And uh, they have thrown the contracts out the window, you know, because love is in the air. And so, uh, so there's no, uh, like, I, I, I just, I have some measuring spoons. And, uh, and there's no, like, I'm going to give you flowers, and then later you're going to give me a card. Th these things are long gone. They'll come back later, don't worry, you know, <laughs> after you get married. But, but it, right now, it's just a beautiful time. And so I'm going to, you know, there's, nobody's thinking this way. They're just thinking uh, the only limitation is, you know, morals, maybe, and a bank account, maybe. But there's, I, I would, i just thoroughly in. It's love. Love is not contractual thinking. It just abandons measuring out what you're going to do and I'm going to do. It has nothing to do with love. It's quite beautiful. Again, it's too bad it doesn't stay, but that's another thing. <laughs> so here's the challenge. How then uh, is God going to change our hearts to engage in this love relationship? He's going to love us. We've talked about this, but I, he enters in to covenant love first. That's what he does. In the hope, in this giving or withholding, whatever it is, but it's love. And so what he does is he says, I'm going to go first. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to love you extravagantly beyond what you deserve, and I'm going to do it unilaterally, meaning that I'm going to do it regardless of whether you love me. It's John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. I'm going to initiate a relationship with you that is purely on my desire to love you and sacrifice for you. But my hope is as I do that, you will begin to drop your guard and open your heart so that I can have the love relationship with you that I've always longed for. That's the heart of God. And it's vulnerable. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. So we love him as we receive his love, drop our guard, get out of contract thinking, and move into a different way of relating with God. 
I'm thinking about uh, an analogy of this. I'm thinking about our, uh, our kids who came to us 10 years ago. And um, uh, the government gave these kids to us. It's a weird way of thinking. They didn't have to, but they did. And we're so glad that they did. But when we became foster parents, we signed a contract of what was required of us as parents. And it was, a, it was an extensive contract. And here's what's really interesting, is what they did is they gave to the kids a manual. Can you believe this? It was a manual, it was about that thick. And it was what their rights were as a child in this home. Um, very detailed. Now, you only have kids for a certain length of time. And if all that was going on is a contract where I sign what I'm going to do, and this is your rights, if we just stayed there for all of childhood, what kind of kids would we raise by the end of that? Entitled kids. You signed a contract. I watched you. And they gave me a book to tell me what you promised to do. You owe me. What parents have is this window of time to shift the human heart from thinking in terms of contract to thinking in terms of love. And so you try to fulfill the contract and you try to say no now and then with great prayer and desperation that at the end of the day, they will understand what a love relationship is really about. And you pray that it won't just be about entitlement and, and fairness and legalism. God is treating you like children. And his deepest longing for you is at the end of the day, you'll call him father and engage in a love relationship with him. And it's praying that when he answers your prayers and when he says no, that all of that will lead you out of a self-centered contractual paradigm. So let me ask you, what is, your, uh, what is your contract with God? I'd encourage you to write it out. It'd be nice to uh, clarify it. What are the, uh, what are the things that, uh, that you're expecting him to give you? You know? What are the things that you will give him in return? Use footnotes, perhaps. Make sure there's no loopholes. I remember a contract, a, a, a contrite item that I made with God years and years ago. And it was this. I will devote my whole life to you and I will sacrifice to you. I ask for one thing in return, that my children would not bear the cost of my choices. That's what I've asked. And 
all of my children have now borne the cost of the kind of lifestyle that Debbie and I have chosen to live. All of them have. And I have said to God, I asked you for one thing, and it wasn't even for me. And you wouldn't do that? What are you, what are you doing? You're not fair. I remember talking to, I'm not going to say what their costs were, but every one of them has borne a cost. And I remember talking to Jonathan a few years ago. And I said to Jonathan, Jonathan, I'm just so sorry for the kind of costs that your mom and I, that you know, you've borne because of the decisions that your mom and I have made. And they're, they're big deals. And all my kids can go through and tell you stories. And I remember Jonathan, it was so healing to me, you have no idea. And he says, Dad, I'm the man I am today because of the decisions that you and Mom have made. And I know it cost me, and I don't regret one of your decisions. It changed my life. That even what appeared to me to be so realistic a contract, God reneged on because he loved my children more than me, not less than me. But I wouldn't know that unless during those years he shifted my heart from a contract heart to a heart of covenant, trust, and love. And when your heart is bathed in the love of God, you begin to see his decisions in a brand new way. And you realize that he's always loved you. He's always loved those around. But have we had the eyes to see? So what is your contract? What is your contract? What are the things that you've said to God that you demand from him? And I know you're reasonable. There's also things that you said you would give to him. What if you would write that out? Maybe tear it up. But what if it needs to be written out first? To be honest about how you've related to God over the years. How does God respond to that? Let me ask you, would you be disappointed if all God gave to you at the end was himself. Would you be disappointed with that? You didn't get the house, whatever husband or wife you were looking for, whatever job, whatever fulfillment in your artistic endeavors. Would you be disappointed if at the end of the day you didn't get those things? And he says, but I gave you me. And it is my joy and privilege to live together with you for eternity. Could I be enough for you? I've talked to a number of people uh, this week who have commented on what Rachel talked about during worship last week. I've been thinking about it all week long. And she talked about how in the book of Daniel, there were three men who were uh, told to forsake God 
or be thrown into a, into a fire. And they said, uh, we believe that God will deliver us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we will not forsake him. Can you imagine being that kind of person? Not so flighty that all you think about is your contracts, but that because you've received his pledge of love to you, you've dropped your guard and you've now given a pledge of love to him. Now that's a new way of living. That's the way that I'd like to live like for eternity. In conclusion, what happens when we receive God's covenant love? What happens? In Genesis 12, it says this is the, we describe it as the contract. If you like, I will bless you. That's a nice part. And I will, and you will be a blessing. Here's what happens when we become covenant people. Not contractual people, but covenant people. Our lives expand instead of contract. No pun intended. Our lives expand instead of contract. Look, if you live with a contract mind, your world will get smaller and smaller all the time. I know people who are older who have very tiny lives because they live out of self-centeredness and mistrust. And when you live with a contract mentality, your life gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And you end up watching more and more Netflix because there's nothing else to do. But if you sign up for a covenant life, your life gets bigger and bigger and bigger because you find that as you're able to drop your guard and receive the fullness of the love of God, that that love transforms you in such a way where you're able to now live in covenant with others, unilaterally deciding to love them even if they don't love you. And now you're free because love has set you free from the small contractual ways of thinking that is designed to lead you to hell. And God invites us today to be set free from that orientation, that our lives would, would expand to the size of the love of the Father. So, do you see God's covenant love in your life? Can you see it? There's one reason why you won't be able to see God's love. You have contract eyes. Your eyes are just full of well, wasn't quite it. Well, yeah, maybe. Contract eyes blind you to the extravagant, luxurious love of God that has been bathed upon you every day of your life. Taking even the worst parts of it and redeeming them for beauty. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you meet us where we're at. You meet us in contracts. But thank you even more that we don't stay there. That you lead us by going first. You lead us into covenant. You lead us into love and trust and relationship. You went first and were the sacrifice that gave us new life. I pray for my friends today that you would enable us to have the scales of contract fall from our eyes, that we could see what's truly true about you.
Help us see your covenant love today. Thank you.